We cover many topics on Spiritually Incorrect, but none quite so controversial as abortion. Because of the nature of the topic, we have decided to release a two-part episode where we interview experts from both sides of the issue and ask them, from a Christian perspective, to explain their position. There's not witty banter or irreverent jokes from John and I in this episode. This, of all topics, deserves to be treated with some respect. And with so much infighting and emotion, hearing a rational conversation from both sides of the aisle can help us work through our position and understand one another better. In this section, we have Reverend Brandy Jasmine Mimitsarayam, who was ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 2003 and has pastored in Utah, Kansas, and Nebraska. She holds three graduate degrees in theology and is the Director of Institutional Engagement and Public Theology at the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Let's jump right into it. Could you tell us a bit about your organization and what you stand for? Sure. Um, The Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, RCRC, is a 50-year-old organization that is pro-faith, pro-family, and pro-choice. We were started from the roots of or from the the dissolution of the clergy consultation service that existed before the Roe versus Wade decision to help those who were seeking abortions to receive abortions. Um, It was a bunch of clergy, Christians and Jewish men mostly, who began that process. And then once that was no longer needed because abortions were legal, uh, the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights uh, was founded. And then in 1993 or four, we became the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. I noticed in looking at your website that there's very nuanced language that's being used and very careful language. Is there a significant difference between being pro-abortion pro-choice, and pro-reproductive justice? There are differences in all of those positions. I think some of them are nuanced positions, um, and then some of them are cultural differences, and some of them have a little bit more weight to them. So when we say we are pro-choice, we are acknowledging that we are rooted in the history of the pro-choice movement. That's where we were born from, and we acknowledge that that position and that movement was very much so second wave white feminist and very much so loaded with classism and racism and all of the other things that in the 80s and 90s began to shift. And so when we talk about reproductive justice, it takes into account those intersectional awarenesses. I myself am pro-abortion because I believe that those who desire or need an abortion should be able to have access to get one. RCRC also has that standpoint. We have a separate website, a part of our programming called Abortions Welcome, to help people who are seeking abortion, who have had an abortion, who are in the middle of an abortion, have some guidance and some spirituality to walk them through that process. And and really what we believe pro-abortion means is if you need one, if you desire one, you should be able to have access to it. I know a lot of people really think that pro-abortion means everybody should get an abortion. We don't think everybody should get an abortion. An abortion, even for those of us who are pro-abortion, is never the first option. But if that is what you choose, if that is the decision that is best for you, best for your life, best for your faith, then you should have access to one. 
are there a lot of people who would not necessarily feel that abortion is morally the right choice, but that that choice should still be up to the individual person and that that's a very personal private decision? Is that a popular position where it's like, I don't agree with abortion, but I believe you should be able to choose for yourself? I don't know what how to quantify popular, but we call that the morality gap, right? That there are, are absolutely people who believe exactly that. And I'm not the sociologist, um, but there's something like 50 or 60% of people who will absolutely say, I would never. Um, mm. That's not something that is appropriate for me. It's not something that's appropriate for my faith. But I also don't believe that I have the right to prohibit somebody else or that anybody else has the right to tell someone else what to do with their body. And so that morality gap is a term that the sociologists use. And it's pretty large. I don't know if it's a majority of people. I'm not that person. But I do know that the morality gap exists and people fall into it more than they fall either on the nobody should be able to or and there's really nobody in the everybody get an abortion camp. So I, I would say that most people probably end up somewhere in the middle. To what extent do you think the government ought to be involved in regulating our bodies? I am one of those tiny government liberals. No, um, <laughs> and I'm not, but I am, right? Like, I think that the government absolutely plays a role in how we raise our children. The government absolutely needs to provide an education and a safe space for children to learn. The government needs to be able to provide a security net for the society, right? If we have too many homeless people, society crumbles. If we have too many people who are impoverished, society crumbles. That's the job of the government. And at the same time, none of that comes with a license to tell people who to be. None of it comes with a license to tell people how to be in their bodies. None of it comes with a license to tell people how to engage with each other. When we as a country legislated the Civil Rights Act, right? This, these are the ways in which businesses will have to participate in societies. These are the things that employers and realtors are not allowed to do to people. We did that with the acknowledgement that we cannot change anybody's hearts. We cannot say, and therefore you must love your neighbor. The government does not have that power. The government doesn't have the ability to say, not only must you love your neighbor, but you must treat them right. You have freedom of speech, but you cannot call somebody these words. Right. The government does not have that power. We've always acknowledged that the government cannot tell you what to do with your body. And that's been a universal norm. You have the freedom of speech. That's bodily autonomy. You have freedom of movement. That's bodily autonomy. You have the freedom to gather. That's bodily autonomy. You have the freedom to carry a gun. That's bodily autonomy. The Constitution in every way protects for bodily autonomy. Somehow, Christians especially make an exception for this one instance of bodily autonomy, specifically because we want to create more white babies. The need for that undermines the Constitution. It undermines who we say we are as a nation. And so for me, if the United States is going to be the United States, for me, if we are to be who we say we are, if we're going to uphold the constitutional right to bodily autonomy in every sense, then this one must be upheld too. Not a lawyer. <laughs> not a judge, definitely not on the Supreme Court. And I didn't mean to wear my Scota shirt, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to comment on it. I was no, just going to let it yeah. be there. Yeah. Uh, accidental. But that, to me, it makes sense that the government keeps their hands off of our bodies in all of the ways. And I don't know if that makes me a small government liberal, but that's that's how I describe it. 
it is very interesting. I'm I'm not actually American. I'm Canadian. And coming into America, it's so interesting how freedom is used so differently in the different contexts. Because Republicans will use freedom for gun rights and the federal government versus state. And then the more traditionally liberal, we use that for totally different bunch of issues. And everyone's using it differently. And I'm like, what what is going on here? Who, who is free and who is it? Like, what's the, what's the, like, uh, it's just, it's been interesting trying to make sense of that. I can imagine someone sitting at home listening to this and having the sort of reaction that, well, the government doesn't meddle in most things with our body, but, and I'm sure you've heard this counterexample before, the government does put things around, say, self-harm or someone who's going to commit suicide. There are certain preventative measures for those types of things. What would the They're not, response though, be there? Right? Like the government does not prohibit suicide. And if you attempt to commit suicide, you're not jailed. If someone notices that you are about to self-harm, or if they, someone who is a mandated reporter in that very state to state knows that you are about to self-harm, they are supposed to make sure that you are safe, right? But that is not the government telling you that this is not something you can do. That is not the government placing legal prohibitions on what you do to your body. It is, we are trying to make sure you are safe. And in the case of abortion, if the government were to say, we notice that you are spontaneously pregnant, we are trying to do whatever it is to keep you safe, then the answer would be bodily autonomy. We would keep impregnable people or pregnant people safe. And that means making sure that they have access to healthcare making sure that they do not do something to harm themselves. And we know with abortion bans, what happens is that people who are pregnant self-harm, they take it upon themselves instead of seeing a doctor. And so that actually, when people say that, because they do, right? Like the government prohibits these things, the government doesn't. It intervenes in specific ways with people who are supposed to be care providers. As clergy in the state of Nebraska, I do not have to call the police or get someone committed if I notice they are self-harming. It's not a mandate for me. I am not legally mandated to intervene. The government cannot make me do that. Ethically, morally, but the government cannot say you should have stopped them from committing suicide. Police can say, we are there for you. We want to pull you in. We can arrest you and take you if they can get to you. If they can't and a police person fails to stop someone from committing suicide, they're not arrested. They're not in prison. The government does not do anything to the person who sees someone in the process of committing suicide and does not stop them from doing what they wanted to do with their body. And so it's, it's a false equivalency created there, right? Because it's not only does the government not do that, but if we were to take seriously what the government does do and how the government intervenes in cases of self-harm and suicide, we would have a different opinion about the way the government intervenes in abortion. I know a lot of people who wouldn't be pro-choice but wouldn't want to penalize the mother in that situation. They wouldn't want it to be, say, legal, but they wouldn't want to throw someone in jail. I know there are some very extreme people who would say, it should be, you know, you have to 10 years for this. But they would still say that the government, even if they're not penalizing that behavior, is still taking preventative institutional action to prevent those behaviors in a way that they would see as comparable to taking preventative action for abortion. I guess your point was that, well, but that's to protect the individual from self-harm, and this is to protect the mother. So what we know from history 
right? Because in the United States, abortion has just been legal, was just legal for 50 years, right? 50 years. That's it in the whole history of the United States. So what we know from history across the world and U.S. history is that when abortion is not legal, people use other means. They don't go to the doctor. They go into back alleys. They use hangers. They find other, they throw themselves down the stairs. We've seen that dramatized in movies, right? They do things to harm themselves in order to affect an abortion. And so when we say abortion should not be legal, what we're doing is we're putting people in the position to harm themselves. And whether they're legal or not, we know that for most communities, right? Most communities, the only community this is not true for is white people. For most communities, pregnancy itself comes with an increase of the risk of death. So when you tell a person who is pregnant, spontaneously pregnant or not, this was something that they fought for, your body cannot carry this. Or even your body can carry this pregnancy through, but you run the risk of death and you have no choice but to run this risk of death. What you're doing then is saying, being pregnant, getting pregnant comes with the death sentence because you have no right to do anything else. And the only recourse to save your life is to go into a back alley, to use a dirty hanger, to use, and, and we, when I say back alley, they, there are little, historically, there are rooms off the sides of back alleys where people go into and get cut into their bodies with dirty instruments and get sepsis and all of these other diseases that then kill them, right? And so what we're fighting for is for people to stay alive, for people to not self-harm, since we brought that topic up. And it's not just enough to say, well, we won't throw them in jail. Okay, but you're sentencing them to death. You're sentencing them to dismemberment and to being maimed. And how, how is that justice? How is that right? How is it fair? And this is real personal. I had two pregnancies, three pregnancies. I carried two to term. And because of my last pregnancy, my uterus, the cervix of my uterus, the opening to my uterus is pushed behind my pelvis. Even if I could get pregnant again, there is no way I would be able to carry that pregnancy and be healthy. I can't get pregnant again. But even if I could, the requirement now, I live in the state of Nebraska, would be for me to put my children at risk of not having a parent in order to carry a pregnancy that would kill me because people aren't pro-choice. They don't want me in jail, but it's okay for my children to be orphaned and for me to die. Do we see as plausible that one of these sides is ever going to fully win? Or, or is, is there a sense where there's going to have to be some meeting in the middle to get lasting change where, for example, in this case, you might say abortions are legal for health reasons or those sorts of things or passed up to a certain term, but not past that. Do you, do you think that might be more plausible for this country that's so divided long term? Or do you think that's not sufficient either? I think we're asking two different questions here. I don't think the country is divided, not as divided as we think it is. And so I'm going to answer that first. I think that there are really loud voices on either end. And again, I don't think a whole lot of people fall on that everybody should have an abortion as I don't think a whole lot of people fall on nobody should ever have an abortion, right? And I think that there are people who categorize or mischaracterize the other ends of the spectrum as that's where they are. I don't think that's true. I think most people from 
across the spectrum fall somewhere in the middle. And if we're honest about that, we fall somewhere in the middle because no one would say that it, well, I don't want to say no one. Most people would say that a 10 year old who was raped should not have to carry that pregnancy. Most people would also say, even the side on this side, every pro-abortion person would say that if you want to have a child and you want to carry your child, nobody should force you to have an abortion. And I think that most people are reasonable and there's not this polarization that we think there is. That's A. And because I think that, I think that it is, it's possible for us to meet in the middle because most of us are there anyway. We're just not honest about it because we see the debate as all there is. And that's, that's been my concern, even with doing this interview, is these polarizations don't naturally occur. We create them. And for me, the middle ground is noticing the human beings outside of the debate. There are real living people who are dealing with the consequences of our political positions. And as people of faith, our responsibility is to see the people. It's to love our neighbors, to recognize that there are real living people. This is not a theory. This is not a philosophical discussion. There are human beings who have to live with the results of this. What do we do for them? How do we see them? And what is the impact of what they are living with going to do to the rest of society? Say nobody gets an abortion ever. Nobody goes into a back alley and self-harms. Everybody who gets pregnant carries the child to term with no complications and then gives birth. We are at a teacher shortage. Who's going to teach all those kids? How is society going to carry the load of that many children? What is that going to do to our tax rate? Because somebody has to fund those schools. And all of the funds for the schools come from property taxes. So property taxes are going to have to go up, right? Nobody has said, I am willing to pay more taxes for more children to be born. That's not a part of the conversation because we don't realize that after the pregnancy ends and pregnancies all end, whether it's to term with a live birth or not to term or to term with a stillbirth, all pregnancies end. When that pregnancy ends, there is a consequence for the person who carried the pregnancy and for society. And we're not looking at what happens after the end of pregnancy. And so I think if we looked at the person and the impact on the person and that person's impact on the rest of society, it would be easier for us to realize that we, most of us are in the middle and are not having the conversation that we see on the polar ends. I know you probably can't share names and specifics and that sort of thing, but are there specific human stories that you think my audience should hear? This is not from my ministry. But this is a story of someone I know who grew up impoverished in one of those neighborhoods where teenagers have sex. And we know that most teenage pregnancies don't come between teenagers, that it, most teenage pregnancies are an abusive adult, right? But in this neighborhood, teenagers have sex. So her first pregnancy, she was 11. She went to high school with a three-year-old, right? So you're a freshman in high school with a three-year-old. And she got pregnant again and wanted to finish high school. That was her goal, not to go to college, just to finish high school. And she was a little thing. I don't think she was a full five feet tall. And her first pregnancy was large. Her three-year-old was almost as tall as her. And the question that she had was, if I carry this child to term, not just will I finish high school, 
because I'll have to drop out. But will I live long enough to finish high school? And if I do or don't, what happens to my son? And for some reason, and this is going to be identifying information, we were all in the cafeteria having this conversation, trying to figure out how, what would best serve her life, what she should do, because I guess that's what we did in high school. We talked about everybody's business. And somebody looked at me and was like, well, you're a Christian. What do you think? You are, at this point, she's 14 years old. It does not make sense for a 14-year-old to die because of a pregnancy. And it doesn't make sense room full of people who had had kids in high school. It doesn't make sense for you to have to drop out because this is your second child, because we don't have the social supports in impoverished communities to help you raise your child and go to school. And so she had an abortion and the entire school, you know, wrapped their arms around her. But for me, when I'm talking about being pro-abortion, that's who I have in mind. This child who had already had a child, who was pregnant with another, it was carrying another pregnancy and had an option to live or to die, to finish high school, just high school or not, and was concerned about what people would say about her, was concerned about what she would face going to Planned Parenthood by herself. I grew up in a state where your parent didn't have to go with you. And she was clear her mom would not. We raised the money for her to get an abortion. That's what we raised the money for her to get an abortion. And some of us who could drive went with her to get it. And then we loved her afterwards so that she could finish high school. And then she did go to college and her son went to college and his children are now in college because I'm that old that the 11 year old who had a baby has grandchildren. And so for me, that's, that's who I think about. What would she have had to do? What would have happened to her, her children? Because she's got more than one now. Her, her children and her grandchildren if she had carried that pregnancy to term, like that entire line would have been wiped out. And there's something that's not just about wiping out an entire line for the sake of one's principles that has nothing to do with you. Like if you are, and that's my thing, because I have a lot of friends who are absolutely anti-abortion, don't have one. But if someone needs one, they should be able to have access to it safely. A lot of people point to passages in their respective scriptures to show that a fetus is a life, a child. So for the, for the Christian, they might say, God knit us together in the womb, or they go to John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb. What would your approach to those kinds of texts be? I know that your institute isn't solely Christian. You can perhaps answer more broadly about how faith communities in general use their sacred texts for pro-abortion rather than the other way. So I think that what we do with the texts that we hold as truth for our communities in most cases is not what we say we do. And so I I don't know if that answers your question. So part of what we notice at RCRC is that faith communities tend to interpret their texts according to their political means or their political goals, right? And not according to what the text says about itself, not according to the tradition that the text has been interpreted. And and I think that's true across faith traditions. So because I'm Christian, I'm going to talk about what Christianity does, right? So I'm a Jeremiah fan. I love the before. I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. I I love the, the early Jeremiah. I've always known who you were going to be before you were born. I called you into being. I called you into ministry. I love all of that stuff. Love Jeremiah. And I recognize that, A, there's not a lot of universality there. 
right? That God is not saying that Jeremiah's call is everybody on the planet's call. And nobody interprets it that way. Nobody interprets the rest of Jeremiah that's about being in exile to mean the United States. Nobody looks at Jeremiah, God's call to Jeremiah to even put on a yoke and says, okay, well, we must walk around with yokes. We don't use Jeremiah universally, except in the cases where we want to prove a point about our own political goals. And so at RCRC, when we're talking about being pro-abortion or being pro-faith and pro-choice, we're looking at the text for what the text says, right? What does this mean? This does not mean that there is a point at which God is saying, if you do this, it's murder. That's a really tough way of putting it. This does not mean that God is saying to humanity that when you have sex, you take over the properties of God and now have created a life. This doesn't mean that. And that's what the anti-abortion crowd says. But we look at to be pro-abortion in scripture. We look at things like Numbers 5. We look at, at the abundant life that Jesus says that we are promised. And we look at who God is, right? God creates life. Humans don't. So how can we then say that something that human beings do, copulate, has created a life? God did that. And if God creates a life, how do humans have the ability to take it? We're in Eastertide, and I'm so glad we waited to have this conversation till after Easter, because as Christians, we say death has no sting, right? There is victory. There is no grave. Whatever it is that humans have done, whatever power we think we have over life, over each other, whatever harm we think we can cause, Jesus conquered it all, right? There is no more death. We have eternal life. And even the most conservative Christian cannot say that a conceived entity has the ability to commit sin such that they would be absent from eternal life. So if God creates life, God has prevented death. How then can we say of each other that what you have done created life, what you have done created death? Either we are God or God is God. And we have to decide for ourselves as Christians, whether we are God for ourselves or whether we actually believe what we say. And that's a whole theological argument. That's when and where I enter. Um, but I, I recognize that most people, when they're reading these scriptures and when they're having these conversations that proof text the scriptures, they're not thinking about what it says about God. They're not thinking about what they are saying about who God is. If you come to me and you say, you had sex, you created life, then you are telling me that I am God, which means our argument is done. A, because I don't do idolatry. And B, if you really believe that I'm God, then I can shut you up and we can be done. And I don't really think that that's what they mean to say. I'm probably going off in the left field. So I, my, the way that we do it is believe what you believe, say what you mean, and read the scriptures faithfully to your tradition. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but was there some sense of we think that we're the ones bringing people into being and taking them out? And it's that's, it's, that's just not the case. Is there a sense in which if you just sort of took that argument and expanded it to human children or adults, that they would also work there? A very similar argument occurs in the Bhagavad Gita when Arjuna is talking with Krishna. And Arjuna is like, I don't want to kill these people on the battlefield. And Krishna says, well, they will just be reborn. You know, they'll continue to live on past this. So do whatever you're going to do because it doesn't matter. It's not really you. I'm the one who's decided this. Does the argument that you've made there at the fetus level, wouldn't that also work on a more adult level as well? Throughout the whole of Christianity, it has, right? Like that was the logic of the Crusades. That was the logic of we can kill these people. 
A, because they're in, they're infidels, right? That was Christian logic. They're infidels. But we can even kill other Christians because even if they're right with God, especially if they're right with God, God will take care of them. They will be born into heaven. What our actions do does not cause them eternal death. We're just removing them from our path. Absolutely not saying that the logic of the crusades was correct. Absolutely not saying that when we kill people, that nobody should intervene and keep us from killing people. Absolutely not saying that it is moral and just to kill adults and living children. What I am saying is that the argument that this is baby murder falters because we don't have the ability to destroy life. And part of that argument that y'all are baby killers is this child will never have the experience of all of these things. What if that child was supposed to cure cancer? What if that child was um, supposed to be the next world's next greatest athlete? And at some point, we as Christians have to say, if this is what God had intended, we don't have the ability to disrupt God's plans. Again, Easter Tide means that we say that there is nothing that humans can do. There's no human action that can undo what God has already planned for humanity, right? That's the whole point of the res- resurrection, whole logic of the resurrection. Even if you're not a Bardian like me, that's what we say. And that means if God intended for cancer to be cured, someone's decision to do something what's right, someone's decision to abort a pregnancy, to stop a pregnancy, to terminate a pregnancy, all of these terms we use to say the same thing, before delivering to term and delivering a live birth will not stop cancer from being cured. It won't even delay it because we know that people who decide to not carry a pregnancy to term, for everyone, there's people who are deciding to carry pregnancy to term. If that's what God intends, God intends it, it'll happen. And so what I'm saying is, that these scare tactics about what God desires and what God wills for us and how human beings participate in the life of God instead of God participating in the life of human beings unwittingly creates idols out of us and out of our political positions. Well, I guess you can think what you think and I'll think what I think. And in the end, Krishna will judge us. (laughs) A lot of religious anti-abortion arguments point to the beginning of life as a primary concern. You know, if this is a child at conception, then all the other discussion and arguments are secondary to that question. How do you, as a pastor, address life and those types of questions and arguments within your worldview of reproductive justice? And you can also broaden that to non-Christian communities as well. Because, I mean, we've been talking about justice and justice mm-hmm. for the living. And I can I already hear the people in my audience going, what about justice for the unborn? So I would say that in Christian and Jewish texts, there is no support for life beginning before the breath is free. In Christian and Jewish texts, and I should say that the opposite in order to not be anti-Semitic, in Jewish and Christian texts, It is very clear that life begins with the first breath. In the beginning, when God decided to create man, Adam, Adama, when God decided to reach down into the clay, this is what the Bible says, when God decided to reach down into the clay and to make God's self a man in God's own image, when God fashioned and shaped that clay, it was not alive. It did not exist. It was clay until God breathed into that clay. The Bible says that once God breathed into the clay, the clay became alive, the clay became a being. There is no life before breath. 
That's what the scripture says. And if we look, in, there, it's all over the place. My favorite right now is the Valley of Dry Bones, right? The bones were fastened to each other. The thigh bone connected to the leg bone, connected to the hip bone. All of these bones pulled together and the sinew wrapped around the bones and skin wrapped around the sinew. And even when blood was in the body, it did not live until the breath came, until it was able to breathe. There is no life before breath. We know from science and from experience and from history and from medical doctors that if you have a fetus, if you have are pregnant and the fetus is in there breathing, it will die. There will be no heartbeat. There will be nothing because nothing in there is supportable of breath. We know that there is no even birth certificate given. There is no certificate of live birth given from any hospital on the planet if that child does not take their first breath. We call it a stillbirth. And so we already say as a society, already, that there is no life if that child does not breathe. You take it to term, deliver it. If there is no breath, it is not alive. We pronounce it dead. And we don't give you a birth certificate because birth certificates are for certificates of live birth, of life. In the text and in scripture, all throughout scripture, all throughout what we already practice as a society, life begins when that first breath is taken. There is no way for something that is encapsulated in a uterus, surrounded by endometrial fluid, to take a breath when that child is born through whatever means and breathes, life begins. And that's not something we can do. And this is my preacher theological point. We cannot make a being breathe. We can put ventilators down their throat and breathe for them. We can give them an iron lung, surround them. This is historical, right? And breathe for them. There is nothing that human beings can do to make anything breathe because we do not have the ability to create life. Only God does that. Are there other texts that you would enlist aside from the Genesis text in the pro-choice case? So I also, again, use the Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones. I'm a Jeremiah fan. So I also use, you know, Jeremiah when I'm talking about God knew who Jeremiah would be when Jeremiah was formed in the womb. That also means that God knew whether or not someone would be fully formed, whether or not there would be a stillborn. God knows. And we don't have, like, I don't do the predestination, right? We don't have the ability to do something that God did not know we were going to do, right? We don't have the ability to say, well, I'm going to do this in secret and God will never know. God knew. And so if God knows whether or not this child will be carried, then I'm not concerned about what somebody else thinks about it. This is what I told my members. You shouldn't be concerned about what your mother thinks about what you are about to do. God already knew. God knew before that child was conceived, knew before y'all laid down in that bed. Because God sees you and sees your circumstances, right? And so we have all of this text that I use about how God participates in the lives of human beings, real living human beings, right? I use the, it's probably Exodus text, where a new Pharaoh had come into power and recognized that the Hebrew people had spread and had settled and was upset and decided to enslave them. And the very first thing he did was say, I'm going to meddle in your reproductive rights. I'm going to take away your ability to procreate. I'm going to take not just your decision to have children, but I'm going to kill those children, right? 
I'm going to kill your children for generations on. You will not have kids. And God's response was, this is not the state's power. This is not the state's right. This is up to the human beings. And then God intervened and celebrated the midwives who went against what the state had decided people would be able to do for their own families. That's what I use because God has an opinion about reproductive health. God has an opinion about reproductive justice. I look at all of the texts of the infertile women because reproductive justice is not just about abortion. I look at all the texts about the infertile women and how God intervened in the abuse that they were experiencing at the men around them, especially Sarah and Abraham. Please call Abraham the abusive husband that he was. How God intervened in her life to keep her safe through her infertility. And what, how that impacted her and how that impacted her community and the women around her. So when I'm talking about reproductive justice, I do a whole lot in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, right? Like God absolutely knew that Mary was both too young to have a baby and that Mary had the communal support to be able to carry that child to term, to be able to raise that child after it was born. God also knows when we don't. God knows what we are capable of. God knows how we need to use our wisdom and our divine discretion to make the best decisions for ourselves. And there's, there's this thing that people, Christians cite that is the Bible, but God will never put more on you than you can bear. And God gives you enough wisdom to know that this is too much and how you have to choose to participate in life in a different way. The problem, I think, is when we are having these conversations about what God knows and how God operates and when God begins to participate in human beings' lives and how God has the power to bring life and whether or not God has the power to bring death or to save us from death. The issue is always morality. Human beings have to act a specific way. If human beings do not act in this specific way, then God will have an opinion and punish human beings. Then God will withdraw God's love. And the question that we really have is what extent do am I responsible for how you behave? And if I am not responsible for how you behave or you do something that I think that God will intervene in, will God withdraw God's love for me too? And because that's part of the conversation for Christians, even those who don't recognize the white supremacist Christian nation, because that's part of the question is how do our behaviors impact God's love for us, impact God's relationship with us? I lean heavily on Romans 8 lean heavily on there is absolutely nothing you can do. Nothing. There's nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing. No power, no witness, no words, no act that you can take that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's no abortion. There is no sin. There is nothing. And there is no asterisk there. There is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that does not mean go and sin all the time. It means that you can do what you need to do in order to live the abundant life that God promised you, trusting and knowing and believing that God will still love you at the end of it. And my God, I sound like a preacher. Well, you are a preacher, right? I am a preacher. (laughs) (laughs) So you are what you are. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because people on the pro-life side will often say things like, well, biologists define life at conception. That's science. That's biology. And I mean, the point you're making is biologists don't, really get to decide that because that's not a scientific question. That's a philosophical, theological question. And they don't do that. That's just, it's empirically not true, right? Because if we're looking at the way that doctors, medical doctors, biologists, and all of these people talk about pregnancy, 
that conception, that moment of conception is two weeks into a pregnancy. And so if life begins at conception, then that two weeks, what are we measuring there? And so because we know that the way we talk about pregnancy is from your last period, from the beginning of your last period, not from ovulation, not from conception, but from from the beginning of your last period. So from the last time you began to bleed is when you are said to be pregnant. Nobody is saying that there is any life there because while you are bleeding, you are shedding everything that would be needed to support that life, right? And so to say that this is what scientists say, it's not true. It's just not true. They say that from the moment, and, and I know this just because I went through all of these fertility issues and had to figure out how to conceive a child, right? So it's not, okay, from the moment we even inject the sperm into your uterus, you are now pregnant. There is a conception there. These cells are now divided. There is life. I lost a child. I lost a pregnancy. And when I said to my um, reproductive endocrinologist, I just lost a child, she said there was nothing there in, in there that was alive. Your body is shedding tissues. Relax. Scientists don't have the conversations that the anti-abortion crowd has. And we're not honest about that. We impose philosophy, we impose our political agenda onto the science, and it's, it's really gross. And I will also say that scientists don't have the conversations that the pro-choice crowd has either. It's always somewhere in the middle. When you were talking about the Genesis Adam example, which I keep coming back to because it was an interesting <laughs> you know. example. Uh, well, I, I like Genesis. It, it struck me that that allows a religious explanation of why there is such a difference prior to birth, even in the minutes or hours after birth, because that's when the breath of life comes in. And I wonder, does the religious perspective actually give some clarity to that that a non-religious perspective can't bring because there is not that clear differentiation of that moment where God enters in that it's just, well, they're pretty much the same 10 minutes later from 10 minutes before in a secular context. Does that give more weight? Does, does, that, does it make sense what I'm saying that the religious case actually adds to that distinction in a way that makes the pro-choice case more convincing. Whereas if you don't have this sort of deus ex machina where God comes in and says, now it's a human, there's not much of a difference materially. And if we're talking in an atheistic materialist sort of world, there isn't much of a difference in the few moments before and after. And so it's actually hard on a secular basis to make that differentiation. And so it's, it's really hard to say why there's a difference between an infant and a fetus. I think you're right. And it reminded me of something that I don't remember who said about the power of the penis to create life and whether or not that's what we're actually arguing about. Um, I, I think that when we begin to have the question about when God acts instead of when what we do becomes God's action, and that was a really theological way of saying that, then we are able to have a more faithful conversation, right? And I think that historically, if I remember my historical theology correctly, and I probably don't, the conversation was always before this child is born, the soul is with God. And then after the last breath is breathed, the soul is with God. And so what we're concerned about is what's in the middle. 
because God takes care of the rest. And I don't know at what point Christians began to believe that it's our responsibility to take care of all of it. And I do think it's absolutely humanistic. And I don't want to call your listeners humanists, but I do think it's absolutely humanistic to believe that penises have the power to create life and that life lies somewhere within that phallus and not that God does. And so I I would think that if the pro-choice side was faithful to any text, to any faith, then we would be able to have a conversation that's meaningful and be able to talk about real living human beings because we're we're having a conversation about the text. Um, And I think to do my job well, that's the part of the activism and the part of the debate that RCRC contributes to the best is that we are pro-choice and pro-faith and pro-family. And so we're looking at this through the lens of where is God and what does this mean, God's presence mean for the people that God created and how does, how, what is our responsibility to each other as good neighbors. This was part one of our conversation on abortion. Be sure and check out part two with Dr. Callum Miller, who presents the case for the pro-life position. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Reverend Brandy, be sure and join our Patreon. For only $5 a month, you can have over twice the content from this episode. Patreon users also get a host of other features and exclusive videos from Jonathan and I. All this for only the price of a Starbucks. Check it out today. Also, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As an up-and-coming podcast, those little things really, really help. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.